0: Glad to be with you guys as we're getting ever so closer to Christmas, which is awesome and a lot of fun. Today, we're continuing our series, He Shall Be Called, and we're going to be talking about this title that we give God uh, that's seen all throughout Scripture that, though for some of us, can have maybe positive or negative connotations to it, uh, depending on maybe your experience and particularly your childhood. And so as I begin, I want to start with this question, Uh, what comes to mind when you hear the word Father? When you hear the word father, what comes to your mind, right? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it loving? Is it maybe, uh, maybe not so good? Is it indifferent, right? And the reality of the situation is how you view this word father has a lot to do with your earthly father. Now, for me, I was very fortunate. I had a great dad. Here's a picture of me and him when I was about one or two, somewhere like that. Here's awesome. Thank you. I wish I still had it. I don't know what happened to that thing after four or five. It kind of went away. Uh, but for me, when I hear the word father, I, I'm encouraged. I think good things. I think of a man who loved his wife and loved his kids very well. I think if I could be just half the man that he was, and I would be doing pretty well. Like because I had a good example of what that meant. When I hear this idea of father, I think you know positive thoughts. I guess you will. Maybe maybe for you, maybe it's like that. Maybe it's different. Maybe you had an indifferent father. Maybe you had a father who wasn't around. Whatever it might be. Again when we think of father it has a lot to do with our own earthly dads. And that's significant because of what we're going to read this morning as we continue our series. It's really been taken out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, and, and Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah roughly 700-ish years before Jesus would come onto the scene. Uh, in this verse, he's talking about some of the names that this Messiah would take. And here's what he says, Isaiah verse 6, uh, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And I'll continue reading this morning, verse 7. It says this The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea of the Messiah being our wonderful counselor, and we saw that He is near to us and that He cares for us. Last week, we looked at this idea of Him being our mighty God. We saw that He is supremely powerful and mighty and just, and compared to Him, we are nothing. He does not need us. He does not need anything from us, and yet He loves us and cares for us and graciously gives Himself to us. And this morning, we're looking at this idea of this Messiah to come, or in our case, the Messiah that has come, would be our Eternal Father. Now, some of you that may have picked up on this and others have not, as soon as I say it, you'll also be wondering what's going on here. But you may ask, if this is about the Messiah, why call the Messiah an eternal father, right? Because you have God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three, and yet one at the same time, and our minds can't fully comprehend, but Jesus is often called the Son of God. So does Isaiah not know how this works because the Messiah hasn't come? Like, why would he call this Messiah, the Eternal Father, if that is what God the Father is supposed to be? And the reason is, it's not because he got this wrong, but the reason is how they and how we are supposed to view this idea of a father. You see, in ancient times, the father of a nation, the king of a nation, the patriarch of a nation was supposed to provide and protect for its nation. And in the same way, that is what a father was supposed to do for his family, provide and protect and be there for the family. And so what Isaiah is saying that this Messiah is going to be our eternal father, he's saying in the same way that this Messiah, this child to be born, is going to take the role of the king over Israel and by extension over anyone who would trust and follow him as our provider and our protector, that he is our father and how he responds to us. And he's also eternal because his role of father, provider, protector does not end at his death, right? It is not limited to his own physical Physical death, but it extends forever because Jesus defeated death uh, by his resurrection. And so, what this means for us is that ultimately, Jesus demonstrates and does all the good things a father should do. That is how he interacts with us, with his children. It's why in Colossians chapter 1, it says this, talking about this Messiah, talking about Jesus, verse chapter 1, verse 17, it says, He, talking about Jesus, Is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the head of 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 what we're doing here. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place and everything. So Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. He's always has existed. Everything that was created was created by him, and he is preeminent over everything. In other words, like we said last week, that we exist for Jesus, like we exist for him. And it's important for us to understand that because how we view God is significantly important to how we live. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and a theologian, he says it this way, that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing to us. And the reason why he said something like this is because how we view God uh, dramatically impacts how we live our lives. So for maybe example, some of us might view God as a force, right? Some uh, mystical, ethereal thing that hopefully you're on the good side or the bad side you don't really know. And so you just kind of live your life and hopefully things work out for you. Uh, Maybe some of us view God as maybe like a grandpa. He's a grandpa God. He's old and he's he's musty and he's angry about everything. And so we got to try to be the best that we can be so he's not mad at us all the time. Or maybe you view God, God as a referee or a cop, right? You got to do the right thing or else he's going to blow the whistle on you. Or maybe, uh, maybe some of us do God as a lawyer. some of you got to know, negotiate with, right? If I do this, then God, you do this and I'll do this, right? Maybe someone we're kind of like always bartering with to get what we once. Or, or maybe some of us view God as a clockmaker. Maybe you would posit that, yeah, it seems pretty impossible that all of creation, everything we know, the universe came out of nothing. So surely maybe a God or a creator started it, but he's busy. He's off doing his own thing. So it doesn't really matter how we live or what we do because he's very distant and he's not in the details of our lives. Uh, or maybe you view God as like an Alexa God, right? Every time you want something, you ask, right? And then you get frustrated if it doesn't happen in the, in the manner or the time in which you Want, right? How we view God dramatically imp- impacts how we live. And this is significant for us because in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the stories in the New Testament about Jesus' life, uh, Jesus refers to God Almighty God uh, over, or uh, sorry, not over, 189 times in the Gospels. In other words, that we see that uh, this idea of God being our Father is the primary way we are supposed to relate to Him. And again, as we talked about as we began, this could be good or bad for you. And so my hope this morning over this next few minutes is that we understand what it actually means for God to be our Father. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can flip there. If not, there's a, a black one somewhere around you if you want to read along with us on page 920. 928. And what I want us to do is because I think sometimes we might have intellectually heard this idea that God is our Father. My hope this morning is that we can actually feel it and actually experience it in some way, as then this shows us the fathering heart of God. So what I'm going to do is I want to read uh, verses 1 and 2 to set the scene for the parable that we are going to read. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is one of the biggest reasons that Jesus is ultimately killed, because he does things and he says things that the religious leaders of the day do not like. And in Luke chapter 15, he gives us three parables. He gives us the parable of the lost sheep, how the the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one because he cares for all of them. Uh, We also see the parable of the woman who loses a coin and essentially turns her house up Upside down because it is so valuable to her. And then it concludes with the parable of the lost son, also known as the, the prodigal, a prodigal son story, to show us how God cares for us. And what I want to do to set the stage before we get into the parable is help us understand who Jesus is talking to when he shares this parable. So I want to read quickly verses one and two to help us understand where we're going. And here's what it says. It says, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So the tax collectors, the sinners were coming to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Right, so they're upset. Now, here's the thing it is actually quite hard for us to fully understand and appreciate the severity of those two verses, that Jesus not only was with, but he ate with tax collectors and sinners. You may have this vague idea in the, in the, uh, throughout Scripture that tax collectors were uh, assumed to be bad people. However, they are maybe much more worse than we often think. They were not people that just took extra money uh, because they wanted to take your money. Here's how this worked back then. Uh, at this point uh, uh, in, in world history, uh, the, the Roman Empire stretched from England to India. Now, back then, the only way to be in charge and to rule over such a vast amount of land, especially with the technology that we have today, that they did it, was through massive taxation and massive armies. That is how you made sure everybody stayed in line. That is how you kept everybody together. Now, here's the thing, that the Romans were actually quite more... uh, Living in the Roman Empire, unless you were a Roman citizen was not that great. And because most of the Roman empire was conquered, it was very hard and very few people uh, statistically actually ever became Roman citizens. And what they would do, especially when they would come in and conquer a new area, is they would not just kill some of the men, but also some of the women and some of the children, and especially the larger or the uh, medium-sized towns, they would then take some of these uh, these men, women, and children that they've killed, they would put them up on crosses and line them up on the streets leading into the main gateway to show every that if you do not listen or if you, do, if you disobey in any way that we do not like, this is what will happen to you. So again, it was not this great place to live. Now, why does this matter? Tax collectors, again, if we're talking about where Jesus was in Jerusalem and Israel, most of the tax collectors there were Jewish people because that's the area that they lived. And so you would look at your fellow maybe friends that you grew up with that became tax collectors as people who not just got rich off of you or had a better living than you did because of the money that they would take, but they are now supporting this oppressive empire and regime. The reality of the situation is almost all of the people in in Jerusalem, in Israel, would have had either friends or family members killed by the Roman Empire, and now you have your very own people turning their back on you so that the Roman Empire can continue to cause pain and suffering and oppression to people. In other words, I don't want to overstate this, but I do want to be clear that there is no moral equivalence that I can think of for us to understand in, in 21st century America how they viewed tax collectors. There are none. They were viewed as people that they did not like. And to be fair, I know the Pharisees get a bad uh, rap sometimes, but all of us living in that time would have viewed the tax collectors the same way as the Pharisees. None of us would have liked them. And that is who Jesus is telling this story to, as some of the Pharisees are looking on. Now, we're going to look at the story of the prodigal son. Uh, you may be familiar with it. If not, I want to set the stage up a little bit. This story is comprised of three main characters the father and the younger son or the younger brother and the older son or the older brother. A couple of things that people get wrong about this parable uh, is that the main character in this parable is not the younger son. The main character is actually the father. The father is mentioned in no, le- no less than 12 times in the span of just 20 verses. Another thing that we can miss, because sometimes our Bible headings call this the story of the, or the parable of the prodigal son, is that we, under- we misunderstand what the word prodigal means. We kind of think the word prodigal means runaway. That's not what it means. The word prodigal actually means uh, reckless or wasteful or exuberant or not keeping control of the things that you have. In other words, it means to go and to spend until you have absolutely nothing left. Now that's significant because what we actually find is that the word prodigal in this parable actually applies to the father and his exuberant love for his children more so than it does to the son who wastes what was given to him. It actually applies to the father. And so that being said, here's the story of the prodigal son, chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Again, keep in mind Who is listening to this? The poorest of the poor, the sinners, the down and out, who would have been classified as, uh, for us, when we hear sinners, we think maybe bad people. For them, it was actually a caste. It was kind of like the lower caste system. If you were diseased of any any kind, had some illness, if you were deformed in any way, both of those physically deformed in any way, they would have assumed that you had sinned in some way to cause that to you. Prostitutes and tax collectors, they were kind of the class of sinners. And that's who Jesus is talking to when he says this. Verse 11. He also said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So here's some context of what is actually going on. The younger son, quite clearly, asked his father for his inheritance early. Now, back then, this was an extremely shameful thing to do. This is essentially saying, I wish you were dead. I'm more interested in what I can get from you than actually having you yourself. Give it to me and let me do what I want. Now, this is interesting if we parallel this, uh, how our relationship to God can often be. If we're being honest, sometimes we're not so much interested with God as in what we can get from him, right? We just want God to give us what we think is rightfully ours so that we can do whatever we want. And that is what's happening in this story. Now, what is surprising is right off the bat, you already have something that no nobody would have seen coming. Nobody would have thought would actually have happened. When this son goes and asks his father for his inheritance early, it was actually Jewish custom. You can read about it in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, that the father actually had legally every right to have his son killed for asking that before he actually died, or at the very least, uh, have his son outcast from the village in that they lived in, never to return again. Legally, he had every right to pretty much strike down his son for asking for such an egregious request. And yet, what do we see? that the father not only gives his son what he asks, but then he lets his son hang around for a few days before he actually leaves. And what this shows us, if you're familiar with the passage in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, how it talks about how God will give us over to our desires, that oftentimes God will give us what we want because he is not oppressive. He does not force himself upon us. If we say, God, we do not want you, we want these other things, he will allow us to go our own way because he will not make us follow, uh, follow him. He will not make us trust in him. And that is exactly what is happening here. Although he knows the son is making a bad choice, he is not going to force himself upon him. And so he allows his son to go off and take whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do. And then what happens? Things eventually get so bad. Again, we kind of think he was poor. He was hungry. He works with pigs. That's kind of gross. For them, again, this is also a very egregious thing. As a Jewish person, you do not eat pigs. You know, we're not around pigs. You do not know, do anything with them. And so he's breaking all sorts of Jewish law because he's found himself in such a desperate place. He has hit rock bottom. Now here's the thing about hitting rock bottom. I think all of us in different parts of our life have been places where we have possibly cried out, been frustrated, and and been been, uh, maybe upset with how things are going. And yet what we see is that oftentimes it is God's grace to us because it is in those times that we actually see what is actually most important. And that's what we see happen here. And so verse 17, again, all this stuff is happening. He's starving. He's working with pigs. And then it says this, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers." In other words, what happens here is he finally realizes that he is living a terrible life, a terrible existence, and even his father's servants live a better life than him. And so he understands, well, I'm surely not worthy to be called his son, but maybe if I go back and beg, he'll let me just be a servant and I'll be living at least a hundred times better than I am living right now. And what does he even do? He then actually starts to work up a speech that he's going to give his father, right? And we've all been there, whether you're trying to apologize or whether you're trying to get something that you want from someone, right? We've all been there, we're like, Here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to say it. Here's where I'm going to pause, right? To try to get what I want. And that's what he does. He comes to his senses. He realizes like, this is terrible. He starts to rehearse his speech and off to home, off to home he goes. And then he says this in verse 20 as we pick up the story. It says, so he he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sights. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring me the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began To celebrate. Now, again, if you're putting yourself in the mind of the people who are hearing this story for the first time, this is absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy for a number of reasons. Number one, the father runs to him when he sees him in the distance. Why? Well, that was a shameful thing for them, for men of his stature in this time period, you did not run. There's also another reason that why he ran that we'll explain at the end of the story, but that's not something that you did. So you'd be like, why is he running? Number two, this son barely gets his uh, apology speech out of his mouth. He barely gets started before his father says, I, it's not, I don't wanna hear it, you're home, let's celebrate. And then what does he do? He gets this brother some fine. Clothes, and he says, order this man a steak. And I don't know about you, but that's awesome, right? In fact, I might have finished my steak and left again, so that could happen again. Like, that's absolutely incredible, right? He does all of these things. He responds in a way that no one would have expected. And again, imagine for a second hearing this story from the perspective of a Pharisee right? Pharisees are people that say they don't deserve it. I've been here. How dare he do that? Right? So that is not fair. And they would have looked at maybe with anger at this story. But then take the perspective of a tax collector. They're thinking the same thing, right? This is not fair. But instead of maybe disgust or anger, they're filled with hope. They're filled with man. What is he trying to say? If, if that's how the father would respond to the son, then maybe God has grace and maybe, just maybe, there is hope for Me, Because if we're honest, if we're being honest about the story, as much as we want to say we would respond like the Father, all of us, if we're not careful, can be a Pharisee about certain things, right? All of us, if we're not careful, have certain people that we say they don't deserve to be forgiven, right? Or, or we say, how dare they do certain things? Like, so for example, maybe someone who is politically different than you or votes differently than you, and you say, how dare they? Why would Jesus go and spend time with them? Or maybe people who have done certain things or have a certain type of behavior that you don't like, you might, be, you might also, just like the Pharisees, be like, why would he do that to them? Now, the reason why this is good for us to know, because this means that if Jesus would hang out with people that you don't like, it also means that Jesus would hang out with you. And what we need to see from this parable one of the most amazing things we see from this parable is this, that God celebrates the return of his sons and his daughters. That this is not some small thing to him when people say, God, I need you, God, I'm sorry, God, would you take me back? That he actually celebrates. That this is not this is, Again, this is not some small thing. Think of it this way, right? If you have a cat, if you have a dog, if you have a pet, and a pet that actually one day ran away, right? When your pet runs away, You're pretty bummed about it, right? Especially if it was a pet you really liked, right? But let's say the pet comes home. What do you do? You're super excited and you celebrate. Why? Because you're excited that your pet has returned. Now, this has actually happened to us in our household a couple of months ago uh, in October or September, something like that, our cat Phoebe, who's an awesome cat. uh, She's like one of the cats because like cats are different than dogs. Like dogs are all awesome. Cats are harder to find a good one. Um, But Phoebe's (laughs) awesome because she she sits on your lap and she plays with you and she puts up with our kids. Like she's actually a good cat. Well, she got out one night, which is not too rare. Sometimes she would run out and she'd be back in a couple hours or at the very least, the next morning, she's waiting for us to let her back in. And so we got home from a vacation and she like got out as we were bringing the suitcases in. I'm like, whatever, stupid cat, you'll be back later. (laughs) And so the next morning, no cat. And in the morning I do that, no cat, no cat. And it's like four or five days. And I'm thinking, dang it. Oh, she's a good cat. And then I'm also thinking, Christina and I are thinking, we got to tell Finley. So Finley's our four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and we're like, we got to explain to her that Phoebe's not coming back, and she's going to cry and she's because she's still thinking the cat's going to come back at some point. And so we talk to her, we say, Finley, we're really sorry, we want to let you know Phoebe's probably not going to come home at this point, you know, she's probably not coming back. To which she looks us dead in the eyes and responds by saying, it's okay, we'll just get another one. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, Taught you well, right? Um, Now, I forgot to say this after first service. About a month later, our cat did actually come back, okay? So she did come back. I guess that's the first service. It was crazy, right? She was skinny, whatever. Of course, Finley was like, this is cool, but she wasn't like going crazy with it. Now, why do I say that story, right? Because if we're honest, we sometimes think that that is how God views us. That maybe God loves us and maybe God is is happy for us, but like if we don't come home, no big deal. He's got a lot of other people that he can celebrate with. And what we see in this parable is that is not true. That God absolutely celebrates every single person who comes to know and to see him for who he is. He celebrates the returns of his sons and his daughters. No matter what you might have done or what has been done to you, God celebrates it. And we see the the fathering heart of God in this parable. And so because of that, let's continue. Here's what happens next. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. Uh, His older son was in the, where am I? Verse 25. The older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Now, the older son is trying to figure out what is going on. And you know, you know that this is a party because he didn't just hear music. He heard dancing. And I don't know, like, I don't know how that happens, but I think what this is supposed to show us is this is probably the most extravagant party that his father had ever thrown. His son had probably never, ever seen anything like this. like this, And so he's trying to figure out what is going on. He grabs a servant. He says, what is happening? Here, here's what he says, verse 27. He says, your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then he, talking about the older son, became angry and didn't want to go in. He came angry and didn't want to go in. In other words, the older son, like everybody who's listening to the story cannot believe what is happening, right? And here's the the thing, if we're being honest, right? Especially if you're familiar with this story, we love the idea of of extending grace to the younger brother. Why? Because I think most of us understand that we need grace too, right? Most of us in the culture in which we live, whether or not you believe in God or not, would would admit that you're not perfect. And so we're like, that's great. He receives grace. That's awesome. But if we're not careful, we start to get mad at the older brother. We start to get mad at the older brother for not having grace and not having forgiveness, like the father clearly does. And what happens is that if we are not careful, you and I begin to view the older brother the same way the older brother views the father. Right? The older brother is like, "Why would you do this? I can't believe you would respond in that way." And we can start to view the younger, the older brother, the same way that he views the father. Because if you are like me, if you are like me, you and I love to extend grace to those who admit they made a mistake. We love to extend grace for those who ask forgiveness, but we're not so quick to extend grace to those who are maybe self-righteous or those who we think do not deserve it, right? And this is where the older son finds himself. He does not deserve it, and he in some ways is right, right? The younger son does not deserve it. And so if we continue, here's what happens next, right? Verse 28, again, he was angry, didn't want to go in, and so his father came out and pleaded with him father came out and pleaded with him, "'but he replied to his father, "'Look, I have been slaving many years for you, "'and I have never disobeyed your orders, "'yet you never gave me a goat "'so that I could celebrate with my friends. "'But when this son of yours came, "'who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, "'you slaughtered the fattened calf for him.'" In other words, here's what's happening here. The father goes out and he's pleading with his older son now. He's now offering his older son grace for the way he is behaving, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. In other words, the son rejects him and saying he doesn't deserve it, right? This older son is acting like many of the Pharisees would have acted at this story. Many, How many of us, if we're being honest and never had heard the story before, probably also would have reacted that this younger son does not deserve it. And so the question for us as we read this parable, particularly when it comes to how we view Other people and how we view their sin is this. When you see sin, does it stir in you disgust or compassion? When you see the sin of other people, does it stir in you disgust at who they are, or does it stir in you compassion for what they are doing? Now, to be clear here, God is a God who is perfect and righteous and just. He hates sin. And I and I could be wrong in this, and so I'll just kind of say that. But I think part of the reason, if not the primary reason God hates sin, is not just because it goes against his character and not just because it's some arbitrary line of what he says is good and what he says is evil. The reason, I think, the primary reason that God hates sin is because God loves us and he wants us to experience life. And he knows when we choose to do things that are not good for us, it does not give us and bring us the life that he wants for us, right? And so what happens is although he does care about sin, when we sin, it stirs compassion in our heavenly father, because he knows that we are missing out what he wants for us. And I think if we're honest, there are certain sins and there are certain types of sinners that we might have compassion for. And there are certain sins that people commit. When we see that, we are disgusted with the person. Again, of course, this is a tension. This is a tightrope. And we're not saying that sin is okay. And we should be disgusted at some sin. But if we are disgusted at the person, those are the areas in our life where if we're not careful, we might be a Pharisee. What we're saying here is that Jesus responds with compassion. He hates the sin, but the reason he hates the sin is because he loves us. You and I, the areas in our life that we are disgusted, it might be the areas that if we are not careful, we are actually a Pharisee. And so here is how the story ends. All, knowing all of that, here's how it ends. Verse 31, again, the, the father is pleading with the son to come in. Here's what he says to him, to the older son. He says, son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In other words, here's what he's saying, that everything I have is yours. There is probably not a need, and not only a need, there probably was not even a want that his older son could not have Just at any point, no matter what. He just said, I want this and I have. He says, everything I have, you always get to experience. But this younger son was without because he was not here. This younger son has returned, and so we're going to celebrate the fact that he is back in the family. Again, nobody would have predicted this ending. Nobody listening would have thought this would have happened. Now, you might be listening as you read the story. And one of the things that you might think is why did it take the son so long to come home? Because here's the thing if for the father to respond in the way that he did, it probably, if you knew the father, might not have been a big surprise to you. He probably was loving and gracious in many ways because he acted in such an extravagant way here. And so the question is why would the son be so afraid to come home? Uh, one reason is because of the shame that he caused his family. But another reason is because of something called the kezaza. And this is something I think having maybe a cultural understanding of what was happening when this parable was taught helps us appreciate what is being said even more. And the kezaza, I'll read it. This is a quote from the book starting over by Dave Ferguson. He can explain it more succinctly than I can. But here's what would have happened to the son, what was supposed to happen to the son when he came home and why he was so hesitant before he actually came home. Here's what he says. He says, if a young Jewish man, had abandoned his family, squandered his wealth, etc., and then decided he wanted to come home, hoping to start over, members of the community would meet him at the city gate. A leader for the community would bring him a clay pot, and in front of the returnee, this leader would ceremoniously throw the pot to the ground where it would shatter to pieces. Then the leader would pick up one of the shards, hold it to where the young man could see it, and deliver a rebuke along these lines. He would say, this is the brokenness that you have caused in our community, You have broken trust, you have broken relationship, you have broken the heart of your father. The damage is beyond repair, so let this be a symbol of your own broken life. You are not whole, you are not family, you are not welcome, you are cut off. Again, kezazah means to cut off. So this young man would have had to turn around and head out into the world again, friendless and alone. Now, why is it for us significant for us to understand that? It can be really easy for you and I to hear the story and be like, great he forgave the son. That's so nice. But what we also see here is that the father did not just forgive the son, but he took the shame of the son himself. He forgave the son, and then he he took the ire and the rebuke from the community. He said, I'm not going to allow my community to treat my son this way. I'm going to run out and protect him from what he deserves coming to him. And so what we see here is that this is exactly what Jesus does for us. He does not just forgive us, us. He does not just say, that's okay for what you've done. He also gives us grace, and he takes the shame that we deserve that Jesus became for us what this father was in this story to put it another way you can sort of put it this way that no one is beyond the grace and mercy of the Father. no one is beyond the grace and mercy of of the Father, this is literally what the gospel is. Listen, the reason why we celebrate Advent in this Christmas season is not just because it's cool that God came. The reason it's cool that God came is for Him, for what He actually came to do. That the King of the Universe came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That He lived the perfect sinless life. That He took the punishment that we deserve, so that anyone who would trust and follow in Him could receive the blessing of His death, burial, and resurrection, and one day be entered into His kingdom. Not because of you, because of Him. And the invitation is that no matter who you are, even if you're a sinner, even if you are a tax collector, there is hope for you. No one is beyond the mercy and the grace of the Father. And if I were to tie it up this way, especially when we talk about this idea of our Messiah being our eternal Father, here's what I would say. Here's the main point. That God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of what it means to be a dad. God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of what it means to be a dad. Listen, even if you're like me and you had a great or you have a great father, even that does not even compare to the goodness of who he is. And if you were here this morning and you had a bad father, maybe an absent father, maybe an abusive father, you need to know that that is not who God is. As we talked about this question earlier, how do you view God? Especially since we're supposed to view him as a father. My hope this morning is that we would see him through the lens of what that actually means. And I think in our culture today, sometimes we can say things happen by coincidence or by happenstance. And I want you to know, especially if you had a a difficult father in this life, that you are not here today by accident. You're not here today by accident. You are here because God wants you to know that he loves you and that he cares. Again, how do we view God? When you view God through the lens of this story, you see hope, you see grace, you see forgiveness, and you see love. You have you see a God, a father, who is not simply the reflection of your earthly father. We see someone who is the, the perfection, the epitome of what it actually means to be a dad. And he's inviting us to come and follow and experience him. Let's pray.